Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name's uh, my name's Jenny Owen. I'm director of the career service here at the LSE. Um, a couple of um, housekeeping points first. Uh, one is that this lecture will be being recorded and hopefully we'll get that out as a podcast so if you want to pick it up and listen to it later or to pass it on to friends and colleagues that's um, an option to you. Also if you've got Twitter accounts and you want to comment on the lecture the hashtag for this evening's event is um, hash LSE Anders. Um, there will also be a book sale and book signing at the end of the event. Uh, books are available for sale in the foyer and uh, George has kindly agreed to sign them for you up on the stage. Um, so I was delighted to be asked to chair this event and, and to welcome George Anders to the LSE. Uh, for those of you that don't know, George is a Pulitzer Prize winning feature writer specialising in opinion pieces on the US economy, financial matters and innovation. His new book, The Rare Find, which he's here to talk to you about tonight, is about the search for exceptional talent. As a director of career services, I spend a lot of time listening to employers talk about the war for talent. And whilst the current climate means that there's more graduates than ever searching for less jobs than perhaps there's been in previous years, the um, Recruiters are still searching for the brightest and the best, and so the war for talent remains. And since it's been a catchphrase for the last 10 years or so, if nobody's winning the war for talent, then maybe the time's right for a change of tactics. And with that, I'll hand over to George. Thanks for the chance to be here. Uh, this is a book that I've been wanting to write for easily 20, 25 years. It probably goes back to a, a juncture much earlier in my career. I came to London in 1982 as bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal Europe. Our circulation was a modest 28,000 then, but it was real circulation. And uh, at that time, I was wondering, how do you find the right people for all kinds of fields? I, I went through the process of being tested by the Hay Group to do a piece about aptitude tests, personality tests, and they told me I was moderately suited for journalism, but I really ought to be a fund manager. Uh, it's probably good for everyone's portfolios that I ignored that advice and stayed in writing. But ever since, almost no matter what field I wrote about, chiefly for the Wall Street Journal, but also for the New York Times, Fast Company Magazine, and others, if I was writing about medicine, I wanted to know how do you find great doctors. If I was writing about education, I wanted to know what does an admissions office know or do or think to pick out the students that they think will be best suited. Uh, I had a very interesting month during the height of the dot-com boom, tagging along with venture capitalists trying to find the next Amazon.com. That was such an upside-down world where they were shooing away the people who were only going to lose $5 million in favor of the people who had a plan to lose 40 or $50 million on the belief that that was going to lead to success. So uh, in 2008, I had the chance to start pulling together examples from a lot of fields and to go out and to look for ways that people could uh, find great talent and sort of solve the mysteries of what does it take to pick the best people. Let's see. Do we have an escape button that works here, or do we have something different? Okay, we're on the mouse. Okay, the arrow moves us forward. Okay. Uh, as we noted in the introduction, uh, talent is an area where uh, everyone wants top flight talent, and there's no end of books that will, will tell you that the top grading, the hunt for A players, and this notion that somehow talent can be 
quickly identified and there are people who are unmistakably better than others. It's not that simple. Uh, and in fact, when you, you look at uh, how people fare, uh, this is a survey that caught my eye. It's from New Talent Management Network. When you ask uh, HR managers, are you winning the war for talent? Less than one in five says, yes, we're winning. The vast majority think they're battling to a draw. And a good 10% say, no, we're losing. Uh, so you wonder, if this is so crucial, what are we doing wrong? Uh, strikingly, the higher up you go in the organization, the more frustrating the results become. This is a look from uh, Booz and Company at CEO turnover. Uh, more than one in three uh, CEOs are tossed out for cause, as opposed to allowed to retire. When you get to telecommunications, which is its own sort of uh, pool of trouble, the percentage rate rises above 50%. And CEO turnover um, booze pegs at 13.6%. For all the work that's done hunting for good CEOs, for all of the board work, the search committees, uh, the vast run-through of candidates, uh, big companies still have trouble getting it right. And in fact, one of the later chapters of the book looks at some of the particular frustrations there. I, I can't help but bring up Hewlett Packard. It's a company from my home zone of Silicon Valley. It's one I wrote a previous book about. They've gone outside four times in the past 12 years for CEO, and we have the faces of the four CEOs, Carly Fiorina, Mark Hurd, Leo Apoteker, and the newest, Meg Whitman. We have their tenure, which tends to be getting shorter. We have the size of options grants they get, which uh, is double-digit millions in every case. About the only trend line that seems to be going in the right direction is severance pay, which is getting smaller when it emerges that they got the wrong person once again. Uh, in each case, they came in with people that they had high hopes for, otherwise they wouldn't have paid them the big sign-on packages. In each case, they got someone who either didn't understand the culture or couldn't deliver the results. What do we know from academic research? Um, this, unfortunately, is one of these cases where people study what is easy and simple and straightforward to study rather than where the action is. So uh, we have a lot of studies that explain how to hire nurses. We have a lot of studies how to hire auto workers and no end of studies of how to hire bank tellers. Uh, in these cases, you've got thousands of data points. You've got fairly simple sets of skills. You've got simple structured interviews and ways of scoring. But you don't really have a great differentiator. Uh, I mean, the, once someone's got a job on the assembly line, the best auto worker and the average auto worker are not that far apart. Uh, again, within a bank, uh, the differences are not that vi uh, enormous. And the areas that are most interesting to me, and I think to all of you, are the cases where there is one in a million talent, where there are people who can do extraordinary things, and the ability to get someone like that into your organization is what's going to make the difference. That's an area where there's far less academic work. Uh, it's much harder to study. The sample sizes are smaller. The skill differentiators are much more nuanced and complex. And nothing stays still for very long. That who you want to hire in 2002 and 2009 and 2011 become different. Um, I felt that this is an area where rather than the classic big data set and hypothesis testing, you need to turn the process around and approach it really with a more inductive approach looking at the most successful companies, and that's a fairly small set, but seeing what are their practices, what are their habits, and then building up some findings that hopefully can be tested later on. So that's what I set out to do in the book. Uh, there's a McKinsey study that I do like that looks at what really are we talking about when we say work. And they break it down into three categories, production, transactions, interactions. Production is essentially manufacturing. 
These are statistics from uh, the U.S. economy in the last 10 years, but you'll find almost the same thing in any OECD country. Uh, manufacturing jobs are fading. We're automating any factory we can. Uh, and the whole path of economic progress, for better or worse, is to get the factory worker out and to get machinery in. Transactions, which is really the low end of services, uh, we see, again, job attrition. Uh, automation comes in some places. Offshoring comes in other places. The one area where we see a lot of growth is what uh, McKinsey calls interactions. And these are the jobs that involve interacting with people. This is what LSE graduates do. Uh, consulting, law, uh, senior management, uh, systems analysis, advertising, um, all of the professions where, you know, there's six-digit incomes and there are also jobs with incredible subtlety and complexity. And this is sort of the blind spot of how we think about recruiting, how we think about hiring. This is, becomes much more of an art, less of a science, and there's a need to move forward and find fresh approaches. So, the key questions to me, how do world-class ambitious organizations get talent right, and what can the rest of us learn from them? As I said, uh, in driving the book, I wanted to go and find about a dozen organizations that I felt were exemplary, that had worldwide appeal. I wanted this to be a book that could be read not just in New York or Dallas, but that could be read in Beijing, Shanghai, Rio, London. Uh, and you know, we're translating the book into all these wonderful tongues, so fortunately, it will be available. Uh, let me start with uh, the three areas I, I looked at, uh, business, public service, and the performing arts. Business is obvious. Uh, public service to me is teaching, medicine, um, military service, the high end of, of what uh, special forces and other uh, worlds of soldiers. Performing arts is both the traditional um, theater, film, uh, but also including um, sports and other things where people are on stage. So one of the dominant examples in the book is Facebook, which, uh, and this is a graph of the number of Facebook users, which begins in December uh, 2004 with just Mark Zuckerberg waiting for someone to become his friend. He did not have to wait long. The graph goes in millions, and we soar up to 800 million at present. We could do a graph of Facebook's revenue, and it would shoot up just about as fast. Uh, they are now one of the advertising powerhouses out there, and with incredibly fast-growing uh, ad revenue, that that's where your audiences are, and businesses all over are using that to target. We could do their market value, and we'd see the same thing, that uh, the last financings and secondary market trades of Facebook now give it a market capitalization of about $60 billion, which is not bad for a university dropout. <laughs> but I also wanted to, to include a, a range of other uh, iconic business organizations, so we get General Electric, Goldman Sachs. Uh, Silicon Valley's most profitable company, Linear Technology, all of the consulting firms. And to visit to advertising, I um, picked one of the more um, bewildering and catchy uh, ads just to remind us that creativity doesn't always involve uh, sitting at a desk and moving numbers, but it, it can involve uh, works of imagination and business as well, too. Public service, as I said, medicine, research scientists, special forces soldiers, teachers, um, I love to report. What can I say? I'm, I'm a journalist by training. I'm endlessly curious. I, I would be something out of a, a Kipling story with all the penalties to pay. I'm, I'm the insatiably curious. So uh, part of the fun of the book was learning about each of these fields and spending time immersed in them and, and understanding how hiring is done, how talent is spotted. And then the final area that I looked at was public performance. Uh, and the reason to pick it, uh, I've offered four. 
Uh, the first is yardsticks are clear. Uh, did people come to your movie? Did you get good reviews? Did you score points? How many copies of your books did you sell? Uh, how many people um, bought your music on iTunes? You, you have an ability to identify success and failure very crisply. Uh, these are also fields that are driven by novelty. It's not enough to keep bringing out what you had last time. So if I want to learn about how you search for talent in a fast-changing field, these are good examples. Uh, there's high risk tolerance as well, and that comes with the, the search for no uh, novelty. People are willing to make mistakes. They accept it. And the idea is to have your successes uh, exceed your failures. These are fields where, uh, particularly in film, in books, in music, uh, 70 to 80 percent of your contracts will not pay out. What you need is for the remaining 20 to 30 percent to be your big successes. And uh, I put up uh, Julia Roberts there, and her early films uh, took off in a way that people never would have expected. Uh, if you finance one of those, you can afford a lot of other guesses as well. So now we can start to get to what I actually learned from all of this and what I'd like to share with you. Uh, there are three areas that I, I really want to focus on. And going back to the beginning, we talked about the traditional fields of uh, production and transactions. We have good competence-based hiring systems in those fields. I don't have a lot to add there. I do have a lot to say about the world of interactions, the world of searching for 5 to 1, 10 to 1 talent gaps. And I split the, the findings into three areas. The first is the power of the jagged CV. Uh, this is a, a term for people who are extraordinarily good at some things, but have their stumbles and missteps in other areas. Traditionally, they're the ones that get moved into the maybe pile and may not get hired in favor of someone who's got a smoother, more nicely rounded background, and yet they're the ones who astound the world. So a lot of the book talks about how do you identify those people, what is it about the peaks and valleys of their CV that deserve fuller attention. Uh, second area is what I call talent that whispers, and this really explores all of the candidates that get overlooked in traditional searches, uh, the people who may uh, live in the wrong postal code, who may live in the wrong country, who may be too young or too old, um, who get um, slotted out because of uh, seeming gaps in education, ethnicity, gender, what have you, but the sense of we're looking at too small a pool. The most successful recruiting organizations know how to widen the lens and to take in the people that are otherwise lost. And then the third area is the peril of placing too much faith in talent that shouts. Uh, one of the things that struck me looking at uh, big HR surveys is organizations are unhappy with their ability to identify outside talent, but they're slightly more unhappy with their ability to make the most of inside talent, which is a bit terrifying. You've had people work within the organization for a year, three years, five years, and promotion decisions are still not working out the way one wanted. And when I say talent that shouts, these are the people who seem like obvious successes, but there's a lot more that needs to be known and understood before you know if those really are going to be the people who will pay off for you long term. So three big areas to work in. Uh, I want to start with what's a rather simple mystery, but I'll, I'll do my best to keep the suspense going. You may solve it fairly quickly. Uh, when we talk about the jagged CV, here's a mock-up of one CV that goes on to become quite famous. We've got someone who attended Reed College, a good liberal arts school in the state of Oregon, but not one of America's top ten universities, for one year and dropped out. Limited work experience, and half of it is in an area that's sort of dancing on the edge of legality and illegality. Uh, bright, feisty, and ambitious, and terribly odd personal appearance. Uh, someone who was offered a chance to invest in him very early on said he looked like Ho Chi Minh. 
skinny, beard, not the, the classic kind of well-presented college graduate. So uh, without giving it away, how many people would back him? A show of hands, please. Okay. How many people would say, too risky, I wouldn't go for him? Okay. You get a second chance on this guy. 20 years later, uh, it's work history. Co-founder of Apple Computer, helped launch the personal computer revolution. However, when he made it all the way up to Apple chairman, he was fired in 1985. One of his next projects, called Next, did not meet business projections. Another of his projects worked out very well. It was a big success. And now he's in line to become chief executive of Apple Computer. Same question. How many of, them would, how many of you would take him? Okay. Anyone who wouldn't? No. Now it's easier. You've had Steve Jobs twice. And the first time, we all see the flaws. But Don Valentine, the senior partner at Sequoia Capital, the venture capital firm, said, I don't care that he's a college dropout. I don't care that he's 20 years old. I don't care that he spends as much time traveling to India as he does building up a work history. This is someone who just might be able to achieve greatness. And you know, Jobs' story is well known. Sequoia got a pretty good ride on that, too. Uh, they became one of Silicon Valley's preeminent venture firms. They got shown Google first. They got shown a lot of other companies on the notion that anyone who could find Apple is going to find other talent. So uh, get a few things right, and, and good things happen. So when I talk about the jagged CV, uh, what are the attributes that stand out that can trump all of the seeming shortcomings? Uh, the top of my list is resilience. In just about every organization I went into, uh, the deeper I got, the more I realized that they're looking for people who can bounce back from failure. Not something that we don't search for very well. There may be a perfunctory question of, you know, describe your weaknesses. But usually we're taught to get out of that question as fast as possible instead of spending time on it. Uh, when we write up our CVs, we want to portray them as an uninterrupted success and march forward. Each job was a promotion. We never want to show work history gaps or demotions. And yet, once you get into the workforce, particularly once you get into higher management, it's a roller coaster. There are projects that don't work out. There are um, financing rounds that don't happen. There are stock market meltdowns. Uh, a lot of things can go wrong, and it's how you deal with the things that go wrong that determine whether you're successful or not. We have a big blind spot here in terms of our ability to assess that. So some of the organizations that impressed me here, I spent some time with Army Special Forces in the US, which, after all, learned most of its selection methods from British Special Forces. Um, they, one of their runs of exercises involves giving people inadequate tools to do a difficult task and then watching what they do. So you have a, a broken trailer with only one wheel and some rope, some uh, pipe bars, um, some lashing, and you're supposed to move it three miles through sand. And there's no way to get the uh, bars attached well. There are four or five ways that'll give you a little bit of traction. And the exercise is not, can you solve the problem, but what do you do when you discover that your solution isn't working well? Do you have the persistence to keep pushing on? Do you fix the worst flaws so that you get something workable? And can you hold together as a team, or do you just start finger pointing? Uh, that gets them the kind of soldiers that can be left on their own for weeks or months in uh, remote outposts in Afghanistan or the you know, border between Thailand and Burma trying to stop drug smuggling and be effective rather than ones that go, this wasn't what I was promised, what do I do now? Efficiency, simple virtue, but 
Often you don't see it in a one-hour interview. And one of the things that impressed me about top-tier venture capital firms, when they find someone they're interested in investing in, they slow down the clock. Legal documents need to be reviewed. There's a partner who's on a trip. And fundings take a couple weeks, maybe a month to happen. And they're not doing that because they're inefficient. They're doing that because they want to see what gets crossed off of people's to-do lists. Who are the, the people who week by week get things accomplished? And who are the people who can put up a beautiful presentation about what they're going to do and a month later still have the same presentation without having done any of it? Uh, we need to look for efficiency. I and mean, it's unglamorous, but it's the difference in many jobs between people who get it done and people who don't. Self-reliance, desire to improve. Again, these play to people's ability to grow in the job. It's not just where you are now. It's what your trajectory is. And the, the more sophisticated ways of gauging that, the more you get people who are not just promotable once, but promotable five or six times. Uh, this, again, in the world of interactions, becomes very important, an ability to influence others without having full control. We're not in a hierarchical world anymore. We have lateral relationships in all directions. Uh, our competitors, our customers, our suppliers are constantly redefining themselves. Um, who's tweeting about us, who's blogging about us can build up our success or bring it down, and that's not something you can control. And more sophisticated ways of saying, can you influence even if you're not in charge of people, become valuable. Simple one, curiosity. Uh, whenever I've done hiring in journalism, I've said curiosity is the one thing I have to see. I cannot teach it. If you're not curious in the world, uh, you're just not going to find stories. I can help people become better writers. To some extent, I can help people become better organized. Uh, but uh, curiosity is the, the given. Uh, without that, uh, we can't go forward. What doesn't matter? I think you can, you can cut back some of the standard expectations on experience, that uh, experience is the, the fallback request of if you don't know how to sort people, find the people who've been doing it the longest. But sometimes someone who's early in their career and out to make a mark, or if you're in a new field, there may be no one who has 10 years experience because it didn't exist 10 years ago. Um, a career stumble or two, we've talked about that. And I, the Steve Jobs example I put up because there's someone who had more valleys in his career than most of us, but in between the valleys he accomplished amazing things. And if you saw only the valleys, you wouldn't take them. Uh, personalities that take a few moments to appreciate. And this goes back to my CEO slide earlier. All of the Hewlett Packard CEOs who didn't work out dazzled the board. They were charismatic, they were articulate, put them in a whiteboard, and they could perform like no one else. Sometimes the most effective people, it takes a little while to get to know them, it takes a little while to appreciate them. But the time invested to, to realize who's a person of substance versus who's someone whose best impression is their first impression is a key toward selecting great talent. Second area I want to talk about is talent that whispers. Uh, this is a slide that I stole from Chris Anderson, the author of The Long Tail and the editor-in-chief of Wired. He wrote about uh, the way that the internet makes it possible to succeed selling not just a hundred of the most popular or a thousand of the most popular products, but extending out the catalog to things that may buy, people may buy only um, once in a year or once in a decade because it's so cheap to store and so cheap to list on the catalog. And an auto repair manual for, you know, uh, a 1967 car may be more valuable than a copy of a bestseller because whoever wants that is willing to pay a lot. Uh, so the graph, the orange area are the very popular uh, goods that you sell a lot of. The yellow area are the more obscure goods that just go on and on and on and the deeper you can take your catalog, the better business you have. 
This is true not just for products, but for people too. And I pulled up a list of uh, everyone in the U.S. who's won a Rhodes Scholarship to um, come to Britain and study since, I believe, 1905 when they got started. And the list starts with America's most famous universities, 328 people from Harvard, 219 from Yale, 193 from Princeton. And then it goes on to an enormous number of, of single enrollee schools, most of which I, as an American, had never heard of before. I didn't know we had a Messiah College. Uh, I know we've got lots of schools in Arkansas. I didn't know we had Central Arkansas. And I don't think I can place what state Sioux Falls College is. And I apologize, but we've got that too. But somewhere at each of these schools, there was someone who was good enough to earn a Rhodes Scholarship. Add them all up, and there you are in sixth place, the one enrollee schools. And trailing them are an awful lot of well-known schools. But to leave out all of these less known, you know, once in a decade, once in a century schools, cheats you out of your sixth most important source of supply. Uh, that's a very stylized model, but it's, it's a place where we've got abundant data. Same principle holds in publishing. I, I picked out three uh, quite successful books, all of which were published by quite small publishing firms for quite small advances. And whether that's Michael Lewis's first big breakout book, Liar's Poker, uh, I'm not allowed to say the title of this, but it's on Bull. It's, uh, it, it's a book that defies every rule of publishing. It's 80 pages thick, and that's with everything in very large type, about the type that you're seeing on the slide, and very wide margins. It's a book of about 3,000, 4,000 words, and it's written in a terribly pompous analytical style about why we fabricate and make things up and how that's part of human character and the awkward but essential role it plays. It's screamingly funny. And it ended up selling more than 400,000 copies for an advance that um, wouldn't pay for uh, a holiday in Spain. Uh, and then, of course, Harry Potter, which is in a class by itself, which you know, multiple publishers were offered a chance to publish and turned down. It was bought for a song, and it's redefined uh, success. The, the reason I put all three of them together is sometimes it's the small firms that don't have access to the big talent pipelines that do the best here. Uh, big organizations tend to look for reasons to say no that their pipeline is crowded. It's easy to knock out the, the oddball candidate. But a willingness to uh, take a chance on talent that whispers is something that small houses like Norton, ones that are just getting started in children's books like Bloomsbury, or ones that expect to publish the obscure like Princeton, are able to do. When I talk about talent that whispers, the, the question that should be on your minds is, OK, if you're saying widen the search, how can we do that when we already have too many candidates coming in, when we don't have enough time to screen? And uh, thanks to the wonders of clip art, here's a stylized version. Stacks of resumes, stacks of CVs, and one faraway programmer. How do you find him? What even makes it worth trying to find someone? And I want to take a moment to tell a story from Facebook. I promised you a bit of Facebook tonight. And um, they had a very ingenious way of looking for the long shot talent and getting the cost down to almost zero. And not just the dollar costs, but also the human energy costs. It's hard work going out and recruiting. It's hard work prospecting. And to go on a lot of trips and come home with no one is draining. And um, You want to go to the main talent pools. So what if you could go to all the talent pools in a fraction of a second? And what if you could tap into them with a few pennies of cost on your part and get a pretty good assessment of someone. And that sounds both magical and unrealistic. But the way they did it was to create very intricate, catchy, appealing computer programming puzzles, 
quite similar to the actual work you do, and then post them on a Facebook uh, jobs page with a welcome to all comers. And the result was they would get about 200 submissions a day, um, many tens of thousands a year. And they could score all of the entries uh, automatically and then identify the best 1% and uh, call those people up and see if they want to come for a job interview. And Facebook ultimately ended up hiring 118 people that way. The landmark case to me is a programmer named Evan Priestley. Never quite finished high school. He got frustrated and annoyed with, annoyed with his teachers. Never quite finished high school, uh, college. He got, uh, once again, annoyed with his, his teachers. The school was too slow. Ended up in a small seaside town in Maine, 3,000 miles from Facebook's headquarters, in a rather confined job, sort of customizing uh, websites for little consulting firms. But had this immense appetite for programming, was self-taught, found the Facebook puzzles page, and ended up sending in a solution that uh, was eye-catching. They had him out for his interview and took him through the standard questions, and he gave them not only the answers they wanted, but how the entire program could be run better. And he ended up being one of their star programmers for four years. You would not send a recruiter to Portland, Maine. It's a place people go to for holiday and not much else. You would not look for the people who didn't finish college when there are lots of people who did. And yet, uh, as a puzzle solver, they could find him and 117 more people like him. So stylized, huge crowd of potential applicants. You want to have a method of identifying the most popular, most effective ones and sift them out quickly and automatically so you can get uh, the right people who are going to hold the jobs. Uh, do we have anyone here with programming expertise? Okay, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give this away. Uh, the letter F there, I looked at it, I thought that was just a multi, uh, brightly colored F. It is actually computer code. Uh, there's a language Piet after the uh, artist Piet Mondrian, and each block is a different line of code. Uh, if you're two lines up in light green, you're, you say one thing. If you're three lines up in pale blue, you're something else. And it's basically, if you have solved this, email us at solvethepuzzle at facebook.com. They showed it to 40,000 people. 42 of them got it. Uh, and again, there, there are particularly in technical fields both deep substantive ways and even sort of briefer ones of sifting out, finding the people with imagination, and that allows people to widen the, their scope, look for talent whispers, and come up with uh, people that the competition wouldn't. I should also add that when Facebook was most aggressive in using the puzzles, it was a tiny company competing with Google and Microsoft for talent. Uh, I would guess here that, um, you know, if, if not at the LSE, at, at other uh, schools, uh, Google and Microsoft come and recruit. Facebook may not, uh, simply because they're too small. Uh, they need a way of finding the people that uh, Google and Microsoft don't see. So what are the keys to talent and whispers? Search in places that others overlook. And I went through uh, geography, gender, ethnicity, non-traditional career paths. Um, I should have put in another bullet point that says keep your costs down, uh, either by using kinds of automated methods I described, or by using volunteers. If you're in a catchy field, it's remarkable how many people are willing to help you at no cost. And whether that's alumni, uh, whether that's employees, uh, the idea of helping to bring in talent to a place you care about and helping to do a favor for people who you think would succeed. Uh, there, there are deep pools of people that are willing to do a lot there. And then the final one is be willing to ask what can go right. That we spend a great deal of time asking what can go wrong. That's a good question. It's important. It's worth asking. 
But if we think only in terms of starting with a pool of candidates and knocking people out one by one by one by one until we're left with the last few survivors, we miss the people who have a few remarkable skills that could take them to greatness. And yes, you can find a reason not to talk to them, but why not think first what can go right? Talent that shouts. I'm going to cover this quickly because uh, I want to have enough time for questions, but uh, two points to make here. Even when you think it all looks perfect, you need to ask, is this a good match? Do skills, desires, and needs fit together? Often they don't. Uh, I spend several pages looking at the sad case of Harvard's search for presidents. You'd think America's top university that's been doing it for 300 and some years would have it down cold, but even they don't. Um, their most frustrating search was the one that brought them Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, and I looked at their formal list of requests. Number one was, you know, academic reputation, and he's a towering economist. He's one of the great economists of our time. Number four was tact and diplomacy. But if you think about what university presidents do, the job is all tact and diplomacy. You have uh, an uprising in the faculty. You need to sort it out and figure out how each side can settle. You have Students are unhappy with tuition increases or you know, uh, breakdowns in facilities, you need to solve that. You have some horrible life event that happens on campus, you need to be the, the force of calm. And Larry Summers is many things, but tactful he is not. And I, I, I won't pick over the details of his adventures at Harvard, but it's safe to say that by the time he left, the, the faculty senate just couldn't abide him anymore. And, uh, he, he left with far fewer friends than he started. He went on to do just fine in the Obama administration, but um, their next president, Drew Gilpin, she's an accomplished historian, but she also has a great deal of people skills, and she's been a much more effective president for Harvard. So uh, even when people look perfect, you need to ask, is this a good match? What do we really need in the job? Second question, are we paying too much? That it's great to get good people, but you can overpay. There's a phenomenon called the winner's curse, which was first found in bidding for oil leases, where 15, 20 companies would bid, and invariably the one that got it paid too much and never got the yields it wanted. And you put that many people in a room bidding, and almost by definition, you're going to overpay. So I'm going to let Tom Cruise teach this point to us. Uh, here are uh, very successful films of his from four stages in his career. We start with Risky Business. He was just getting started. They hired him for the sinfully low pay of $75,000. The movie brought in $63 million in the U.S. and at least as much abroad. Uh, Top Gun, his pay is moving up now, but still less than 1% of the global box office went to him. You could make an argument that if you're the star in a movie, it'd be nice to get 5%, uh, 6%, 7%. That's probably fine compensation. We get to Mission Impossible. Now he's got an agent who knows to how to negotiate extraordinarily well. This is, I think, his most successful film. $70 million for him, including an earnout on the box office, $458 million in revenue. The line keeps going up. Mission Impossible 3, less successful film, but he gets more. And you're stuck in a situation where once someone becomes known as a star, there was always the risk, would he go to another studio? And um, Paramount, or whoever was um, signing him at the time, felt they had to pay top dollar so he couldn't be bid away by anyone else, and you're back in the winner's curse. At some point, signing even Tom Cruise for a blockbuster becomes uneconomical. I want to conclude by talking a little bit uh, more broadly how we redefine talent hunts. And remember the slide, we've by and large solved production, we've by and large solved transactions, we're still working on how to solve interactions. That's really the area I'm focused on. And that's where all the job creation is. And that's also where the difference between 
the adequate or even the reasonably good employee and the standout can be 5 to 1, 10 to 1. So let me sum up the, the lessons in the book. I'm uh, now giving you essentially the, the final concluding chapter, but um, I want to take you through the points there. First is widen your view of talent. We talked about this before. Compromise on experience. Don't compromise on character. Second, seek out the jagged CVs and talent that whispers. These are the two zones that most organizations overlook. Uh, third, on the fringes of talent, ask what can go right. Uh, that's a question I first heard from Peter Lynch, a top investment manager in the US. And he would have young analysts come in and present to him about stocks. Picking stocks is easier than picking people, but it's still some of the same you know, evaluative skills. And he said, everyone tells me what can go wrong. I need to know what can go right. And I think that willingness to do the same thing when you're, when you're thinking about hiring is just a matter of pointing your feet in a different direction. And done judiciously, it can bring uh, an extraordinary difference for the better. Uh, finally, take tiny chances so you can take more of them. Uh, you can buy a lot of books for 1,500 pounds and hope that somewhere along the way you've got the next Harry Potter. If you're signing a lot of actors for $75 million, all you need to do is get one or two of those wrong and you're not a studio boss anymore. And that ability to spend carefully and to be willing to uh, take your most aggressive risks in your least costly areas. Uh, we see this in organizations that set up satellite businesses that have uh, branch offices where you can start to bring in the interesting people and decide are they going to succeed and if so can we put them on bigger projects. Second point, find inspirations hidden in plain sight. Uh, one of the things that startled me is how many places start their job search without knowing what they want because it's so much fun to go talk to candidates and there's power, there's excitement, there's drama in the interview. It's exciting when you find someone you like. It's kind of empowering when you find someone that you can ding. You sort of, you know, have a tone of superiority and judgment and, well, we avoided a bad one there. But when there isn't agreement about what you're looking for or when the definitions are hazy or when you've lapsed into cliches that don't really describe what you want, uh, you're not going to have a successful search. So be brave, be clear-headed about defining what it takes to succeed in each job. The area that people overlook the most is conflict. What level of conflict do you have in the job? What approach toward conflict resolution do you want? We, we tend to have a very hard time talking about disagreement and, and stress and the like. Uh, I was talking with someone, and whenever you see a, a job specification that says sense of humor appreciated or required, they're usually saying, we've got big stresses and conflict here. We're not looking for someone to tell jokes. We're looking for someone who can guide us through the, the tough patches without people suing each other or quitting or creating havoc. Um, be upfront about that. You'll find the right people then. Uh, second one, be willing to use your own career as a template. I think, again, classic hiring theory says be dispassionate, be neutral, go entirely by the numbers. Uh, sometimes that's good, but I think we know a lot from what we've seen, not just what worked for us, but sometimes what didn't work for us. The people who had other skills than us who, who went on to do well. Uh, I found this particularly in sports. People are perhaps, it's, there's an easier vocabulary, but some of the best coaches and general managers are ones who are not spectacularly good at the game, but had a real appreciation for the people who played better than they did, and the difference between being an adequate and a star performer. Next area, use auditions to see how and why people achieve the results they do. Uh, chapter 5 of the book goes into this in great detail. I think there are far more fields that you can audition for than just theater. Um, I th to some extent, investment uh, managers, uh, sales, uh, and even general management 
Um, watch people in action. And that's what my point about the venture capitalists. See how, what people do as they're trying to get the company going forward. You'll know more if you have a month-long movie of an entrepreneur in action than if you just have one static picture of where they were for an hour. Uh, finally, master the art of aggressive listening. Uh, this is a wonderful term, and just so that I don't give you the entire book for free, uh, chapter 11. Uh, there are a couple pages in there that uh, if you're in recruiting, if you're in hiring, uh, these are tips that people at the top of search firms for 30 years have said, you know, if I there's one thing that I learned the hard way, it's how to be an aggressive listener. So it's in the book. Final area, simplify your search for talent. My opening point asked you to widen your search, and if you're going to widen, that might mean more work. In fact, to some extent, by definition, does. So here's a way to get that time back to make your job easier. First is uh, avoid those 20-item checklists of we want everything. They're unrealistic. If you have too many priorities, you have no priorities. Uh, so when I went back to the, the slide with resilience, efficiency, and the like, most searches, if you come down to two or three things where you say, this is what I really need, everything else I can work with, it'd be nice to have, but I can either teach it, I can train it in people, I can compensate for it, these are the indispensable things I need. Your search will go a lot faster. Uh, second point, insist on the right talent, and that was my Larry Summers example. Uh, don't be misled by someone who's a spectacular achiever in an area that's irrelevant to what you're actually trying to do. Uh, third one, push your best candidates to grow even stronger. Uh, the past couple days I've been talking with people who've made the point that money alone is not enough to win loyalty. And if you have extraordinary talent that shouts, people will stay and people will do their best work if they feel there's some big life-defining goal that they can accomplish working with you that they couldn't accomplish anywhere else. I think Martha Graham had the phrase of divine dissatisfaction. And you'll see that in a lot of very talented people, that desire to get to somewhere that they aren't quite there yet. And if you can play to that and give people a chance to feel, this is the place I could do the best work of my life, um, you'll have far fewer complaints about what they're getting paid and how good or bad the buffet is. Uh, and the last one, become a citadel of achievement. Quality people like working with each other. Once you're known as a place where the best people come, uh, it snowballs, and it's hard work to take the talent curve up a bit. It's a lot of devotion. It's a lot of near misses. But to get to that point where, uh, now Pixar is an example I spend time on, the very best animators in the world don't want to work anywhere else. And also the, the system polices itself. If you have top animators interviewing other candidates, they don't want to take someone weaker than them. They want to keep the talent pool going up so that their lead over the DreamWorks and everyone else keeps widening. So they make films that no one else has ever made before. So summing up of the summing up, uh, I want to take a moment to acknowledge what the book is not. This is not the definitive last word on hiring. This is a huge field. Uh, I'd like to think I've made a few interesting contributions, but I'm humble. There are people who've worked in this a lot longer than I have who can give you much more detail on many areas than I can. Uh, what I think I've offered is a conversation starter, and this is a way to get out of some of the ruts that I talked about in the beginning and perhaps point feet in a different direction, think about hiring in a different way. Uh, these are ideas that are going to take a long time to sort out. Uh, I'm looking forward to books that transcend what I've done in the next five, ten years and perhaps take some of the, the initial leads that I've offered and then fill them out in ways where I go, wow, that's where you could go with that idea. Uh, and if you take away only one idea, make it, what are the jagged CVs in my world and how do I know how to spot the best ones? I've been talking primarily with the, the sense that um, our audience tonight is people who hire, who recruit, but we're all, to some extent, talent in our own right. 
and many of us in one way or another are jagged resumes too. So the jagged resume you may care about the most is yourself and think about where can I be perceived for my strengths, where can I make the most of them, what's an environment where whatever limitations I might have aren't going to be held against me and can either be filled in or offset as opposed to being stuck in a job where I'm asked to be someone that I'm not and I never get a chance to show what I can do. That's it. Thanks very much. I'd love to have your questions. Q&A is always my favorite part and particularly university talks. I'll go anywhere to talk to a university audience. Uh, these are learning experiences for me too and the conversation is terrific. Thank you. If you've got questions, if you'd like to raise your hand and a roving mic should make its way to you. Hello, George. Uh, my name is Mildred. We're on Facebook. Hello. hello. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. But this question is, um, I'm a CV consultant by trade and I have written a book about writing CVs. So I advise people all the time on what to put on their CVs. And I guess my question is, do you think employers are ready for this jagged CV that you talk about? Or is it a little bit too early for everybody to start, for job seekers to start converting their CV to show the side of themselves that was previously hidden? I think about 10% of employers are. I think 90% still like that traditional smooth upward trajectory. Every month is accounted for. Every job is portrayed as either a growth job or a promotion. Uh, and so the, the question is, is hiring ultimately done off the CV or is this a, a ritual sort of the equivalent of the old bathing suit competitions and beauty pageants where you go, what is that all about? Um, but for better or worse, we have the CV today. Uh, I'm going around talking to employer groups and one by one we'll try and get them to widen their horizons, do some of the things talked about. But I, I think again when I said this is a multi-year process, maybe even a multi-decade process, uh, I see some signs that people are doing more work with simulations, more of a, a sense to get a deeper understanding of candidates, but particularly at an economic time like now where you have you know, dozens of applicants for every job, you probably have to do what you need to in CV land to get the interview, and then the hope is that the interview process can upgrade and do more to draw out what's not on the CV. So maybe the flip side question, if you're new talent, say just out of LSE, how would you increase your options of getting attracted by the, the big firms or companies or whatever you're looking for? We talked about maybe it's going to be a bit too risky, go for the jagged CV, but there are there any particular tips that you, you'd suggest? Um, are we talking about students looking to get their first job or at what stage are, are we coming in? Uh, yep, students is fine. Uh, students or people partway through a career, but maybe students, given the audience. So one of the things that impressed me at Google, which I, I hope other people do, and, and this is a practice that can catch on, uh, they spent their first few years reading resumes from the top down. What's your grade point? What's, you know, they got weirdly obsessive about high school entrance scores for university. And more recently they've realized it's the bottom part of the CV that may tell you more about the person, what their passions are, what their achievements are. And I'd say, especially in a crowded job market, being able to stand out in some respect, that uh, there's always someone who got one more perfect grade than you did. And that's a hard race to win. But I'd say um, commitments outside of school or student groups, student organizations, 
uh, that sense that you led a rally, that you raised money for a cause, that you were you know, on the BBC talking about something, uh, look for a way to stand out, that the, the achievements within the classroom sort of get you into the pool of the considered, but it's the achievements outside the classroom that are more likely to make you uh, emerge as the person where you go, wow, we need them. Mm -hmm. um, just thinking about the way that when we're kind of looking at people in jobs, we're looking at people from their backgrounds, often in education and how they've done in universities and such. Is there a question really of whether you could find these people, whether universities could be looking for these kind of unique candidates when someone is kind of like 12 or 16, where, where, how do we identify talents at that kind of age? Because right now, when we're actually looking at how people develop and the way in which we are telling people how they should develop, we're looking at basically how we can quantitatively measure them. So is, is the question, should we be running people's lives differently at 12 to 16 yeah. if in the end... Uh, particularly thinking about, you know, talking about RDL candidates and the way that we're selecting some of their on the business team to achieve a certain amount of growth at a certain school. And I was thinking that whether there's a question of whether universities or whether universities should be set up to decide to have a look for this, someone who's just got something special and how can we find that? So I can tell you the, the US experience more than the, the UK experience, but we, we often tend to travel in tandem. I think our top universities are now almost victimized by an overcoaching process where the most ambitious candidates, or more correctly, the most ambitious parents, will groom their children to look like the perfect, well-rounded candidate to the point where it all becomes contrived and artificial, and people uh, go on Christmas holiday to two, two weeks of feeding the poor in Nepal, and then they claim to you know, be third world saviors as well, and you go, this is contrived. Uh, I don't know how we break that down, and the answer may be, you know, a la my Steve Jobs example, that some of the most interesting achievers bypass this sort of overly constricted university path. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that Harvard's two most successful students, Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, did not stick around to finish. And I, I think we may be in the late stages of valuing a trophy university education more than we should. That they're, um, you know, particularly in the world that's as connected as it is, uh, you can take more classes online, participate in more sort of learning communities that, that don't necessarily require you to sit in the lecture hall at the you know, fancy school. So I think there's a field in flux. My guess is a generation from now there are going to be far more paths, and I, I don't know what we can do short term to get out of this overpreen status, but unfortunately that's where we are right now. Thank you so much for coming. This was really informative. Um, I particularly appreciated the Facebook example of posting a program. I know that with a lot of hiring that we've done on multiple levels at my um, former employer, we would have a, a test of sorts and a scenario that had to be acted out, but it was inverted. It was after they got the interview. Um, and in that regard, there's been many instances where we are quite dazzled by candidates. And then at the end of the day, when they start, um, you know, you're putting the pedal to the metal and they're actually immersed in the work environment, they're not performing as desired, irrespective of integration, education, training, um, you know, interpersonal exchanges, et cetera. I'm wondering, and, and perhaps this is more in tune with the 
aggressive listener that we have to buy the book to, to, to learn about. But I'm wondering if through your research you identified any really um, exceptional or stellar tips pertaining to the interview process that you could share with us tonight. Yeah, I, I'll talk a little bit about what goes wrong in interviews, and I, I still want to cling to my last sense that you know, there are a couple pages that I, I didn't do. But uh, interviews too often become conversations that are searches for affinity. You know, oh, you vacation in the same place I do, or you know, we went to the same university or grew up in the same town or, or something. And affinity is nice in a social setting, but it's not very important at all in establishing the quality of work someone can do. And if anything, it leads toward an unproductive kind of inbreeding where you, you get too many people with superficial similarities. So it, I think good interviewing requires an ability to keep a distance and to realize this is um, an evaluation. It, it's much more akin toward a good internist trying to figure out what you're sick with than it is to a cocktail party trying to figure out who's fun to spend the next 20 minutes talking to. Uh, and that is something that people need to be trained on. Um, I, when I um, talked to some of the top hedge funds, they actually brought in board-certified psychiatrists to do some of the interviews. The amusing thing in hedge fund land is that psychiatrists who ordinarily see themselves as dominant figures within hedge fund pay are being paid a little bit more than the person who you know, answers the phone, but not much. So all the psychiatrists felt unappreciated, and when I interviewed them, they, I couldn't get them off the phone. It was sort of, at last, someone regards me as, a, as an authority figure. But they would go through much more elaborate questions of, how do you handle failure? Take me through it in detail. And they were willing to get people a little bit uncomfortable in the process. So the answer may be, you need someone who is a neutral third party so you can still have all that warm chemistry if we're a great place to work and we want to have you and it's wonderful that you know we we both go to you know the Edinburgh Fringe or whatever we do uh, but you have someone who can be the court tester if you will uh, you may need to just break up those two roles yeah I'd like to know your thoughts on how if at all, we can apply these principles to locating and nurturing talent in government and civil service. Ah. Well, you, you've got two issues within the civil service population. Once someone is in, they're, they're in for life. So the ability to make adjustments becomes less. And also, to some extent, the private sector idea that you have multiple careers at multiple organizations becomes less. And um, the private sector, at its worst, can be quite cruel. but at its best, it does offer people a chance to say, you know what, I'm at a different stage of life. I want to be doing something different. And our friends who work in state municipal government have this frustration of I'm 52, I'm in the job I don't want to be in, but I'm eight more years to qualify for my pension. My pension is huge, and if I leave, I'm in trouble. So I don't know how you get more job portability. Uh, it'd be nice to build that in, but that's beyond the scope of what I can change. But I think on the civil service side, you need to do that. Uh, I'm seeing more of at the higher level appointed positions and the ones that rotate in and out. I'm seeing more of a willingness to set up arrangements where people can come in from the private sector for a year or two, apply their energy, apply their ideas. I did an interview with a former Microsoft guy who's now chief information officer of the U.S. government, so he has $80 billion to spend. And one of his campaigns is we've been nothing but a BlackBerry institution for the last 15 years that's actually not the most effective phone to have these days. And we're going to have to 
overturn a lot of traditional practice to get in iPhones and Androids and everything else you could use. But I'm committed to doing it, and I want to accomplish a few things during my time in government, and that's it. So I think bringing in fresh faces, fresh talent, and sort of getting rid of that inbred, this is how we've always done it, attitude. But um, it's probably easier to do on the political appointees than it is on the traditional civil service. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I noticed that you didn't uh, mention anything about luck. Um, there was a gentleman who wrote an article in the New York Times recently, Daniel Kahneman, I believe his name is, mm -hmm. and he mentioned the Israeli army and um, tests that they gave um, <clears throat> a bunch of officers um, to to determine who was going to be a leader in the future. And it, it, it ended up being a 50-50 toss of a coin, really, um, to be able to find out who were going to be leaders. And he also mentioned mutual funds and how they select stocks and how that is also amenable to luck. Um, is that something that you found in your experience, or is it, is it a more skill-based thing? For example, the, what you discuss is skills that are measurable and not, for example, like leadership that is more subjective. So they're, they're both great points, and the, the Kahneman book uh, is a terrific book, and I, let's, let's take each of them, because I, I welcome the chance to do it. Uh, so he's writing from first-hand experience, uh, Daniel Kahneman, Nobel laureate in economics, uh, at one time was an Israeli army psychologist watching uh, some of the simulations that are similar to what I described. And it's a good reminder that well-run simulations are detailed, they are rich, and you don't over-extrapolate from them. And he was describing one that has all the problems that you can have. The simulation was too short. It was trying to extract deep understanding of leadership, which is a much more subtle trait than tenacity. Tenacity, I think, you can see from you know, several days of tough military maneuvers. Leadership develops over time. And who helps get a log over a fence is different than someone who can mobilize people for a multi-month battle strategy. So in that case, bad simulation extrapolations that shouldn't have happened from it, and uh, he's right. Uh, I still like simulations. I just want to make sure that they're, they're done in an appropriate way and that uh, we aren't using clumsy ones to try and tell us too much. Uh, the second question, does anyone know how to pick stocks? Uh, there's the efficient market crowd, which will argue that everything is built into current prices and there's no way to surpass what's there. Uh, let me offer a small but I think revealing anecdote. I was at an investor conference about eight or nine years ago, and a high-tech company, Juniper Networks, their chief financial officer had presented, and there was one big contract, that the fate of which was going to determine how the stock was valued. And he answered the question rather obliquely in his prepared remarks in front of 300 people. And then he got off the stage and started walking out of the ballroom, eventually going out of the hotel and going into his car so he could drive off and do whatever he was going to do. And there were about 15 analysts that got up and began to follow him as he walked out, asking more questions about the contract. And he gave them very limited, partial, fragmentary answers. But bit by bit, sort of tiny little more details were coming. And he was in a race to get out of it before he could, you know, spill too much. The last two people who dogged him all the way to the revolving doors were hedge fund analysts. And that is emblematic of what hedge funds do. And you can argue, is some of it skirting the line of public versus proprietary information? But there is a doggedness and a determination. Uh, they have high-achieving, driven, insecure, neurotic, 
performance-obsessed cultures that will get that last fact that will let you know what stock to buy and what stock to sell. So I believe in a world where everyone's making the same amount of effort to get information, yes, market's efficient, most mutual funds, uh, fund managers work nine to five hours or eight to six, but I think the funds where there's an extraordinary effort to track information down are playing with more information than we have, and they will outperform. So uh, if you're setting up a fund, you want to find that analyst who will you know, <laughs> spin through the same compartment of the revolving door to get the guy to tell you something, uh, as opposed to, oh, he didn't really want to tell me very much, I'm done. So, sorry, long answer, but uh, I think the market is beatable, it just takes a lot of hard work to do it. Hi, George. Thank you for being here. Um, sure. I'm actually a recruiter as well, but for private equity-backed organizations. And so I spend a lot of my time looking for CEOs and CFOs of companies that are likely in turmoil or a carve-out of some larger organization. So while I can appreciate the Facebook and Google examples, which I think are terrific, I'd be curious in your research if you found different qualities or different ways of searching for individuals who are suited to a different kind of organization than the typical public, corporate, um, shareholder-led, not private equity-led kind of company with, that may be stodgy or industrial or heavily consumer and looking for a new way of operating that has to be leaner and more financially geared. And if there are firms, uh, companies, for example, or um, search firms that are doing it well versus others um, from a methodology perspective. Have you seen Steve Kaplan's study out of the University of Chicago? <laughs> okay. Oh, this is, this is a great one. We have uh, a paper that he had done on it that we just ran out at Bloomberg View, and I think if you go to Bloomberg.com backslash view and put in Kaplan, you'll get it. There's more detail in the book. So he got a data set from a consulting firm that did four-hour interviews with about 300 CEO candidates for private equity firms, Blackstone, Bain, uh, the like and scored them all on about 30 different traits, including some of the magic ones up there, efficiency, resilience, accountability, the like. And he's got a list of tough love traits that he says correlate very closely with stock market success. That affability does not have any correlation with success and may even be slightly negative. If you're too nice, you're probably not going to succeed in those situations. And I thought you described them well. These are turnaround companies. These are companies that are going to have to perform at a very different level. And that's probably going to mean some tough decisions about where you source your manufacturing, uh, how big your headcount is. If you want to be the most popular man in your town or the most popular woman in your town, you're not going to want to run one of those companies. Um, so it's an excellent study. Um, chapter 11 in the book does give you several pages of summary on it. And I think it's being published in the Journal of Finance this winter, so then you'll get the full thing. But it's a, it's a great grid, it's a large data set, and it, it very much points you toward the kinds of things you described. And it ties in to my you know, aggressive listening point that you really need to draw people out to tell who's tough as nails but can succeed in those kind of companies. Uh, I did a book on private equity, it was my first book, is Merchants of Debt, about Colbert Kravis Roberts. And the... Um, opening section, I do the, would I want my sister to work there test. And <laughs> the answer generally is no, unless you get equity, in which case it's a great ride. <laughs> yes. I just wondered whether, um, through your research, you've come across companies that have very, very bright, creative talent, who also 
who not just want to work for the company, but also want to do their own things on the side, and how the companies, the employees, the employing company feel about that. So these are employees who want to do things on the em side? Employees. Okay. It uh, varies tremendously. and. You know, there, there are some companies where work-life balance or giving back to the community is considered important. There are others where they would like as many waking hours out of their employees as they can. And particularly, if you're going up the management track, part of what you do is to show that you can come in earlier and leave later than anyone else. Uh, and an archetype of that is General Electric. And in fact, a big part of their selection process involves their corporate uh, audit staff program where people are transferred from not just city to city, but continent to continent. And you have six months in uh, Latin America, you have six months in Asia, you're working for a different group, and the company becomes your life. You live in a company apartment, you go out for drinks with your company buddies, and it's a training program, but it's also a selection program of do you want to live that life? And the people who do tend to rise very high in the company. I think of their top 30 officers, 10 or 11 of them went through this program, and it's a small program. Um, so, a fast company magazine, one of the places where I had the privilege of working in years past, tends to do a lot of articles about the Patagonias of the world and other companies that have a, a deeper commitment to social responsibility. It can be done. It helps to be in a high margin business. If you're in a low margin business, you're struggling as hard as you can to just make the numbers work on any basis. But there are islands of um, creativity and enterprise where that happens. I just think that's always going to be part of the mix, but unlikely to be a dominant part, as much as we might want to see more companies do that. Yes? I, I, I work in the area of um, music entertainment, mm. and um, I'm just intrigued as to, I mean, I find myself in a situation where a lot of times I have next to no money whatsoever, but I have to make things happen. So, you know, you work with, you find talent. I find myself having to work with up-and-coming talent. Somehow I have to keep them motivated in order to reach a destination. What's some of the stuff that, what would you say, some of the key attributes or some of the key aspects that you found through your research that can be um, gleaned from the rest, um, from music, um, from, from the entertainment or the performing arts that can be um, applied to, or that can be helpful or useful to the other industries? So let me first pick up the question of how do you keep people motivated with no money, because that's a, a fascinating one, and then we'll go to okay. what, whatever I know about the world of entertainment. Uh, people love recognition. I think that's as much a driver, particularly in any performing field. So if you've got fans you connect with, if you've got some media visibility, if you've got just the, the intensity of people who adore your work, that can sustain um, a great deal of effort without large reward. I mean, if you look at the amount of work specialty um, professors go to in their field to come up with a definitive analysis that may only be read by a few thousand people, but if those people are ones that you care about, uh, that's a performance that's worth spending years on. So I, I think you, what you can't offer in breadth and numbers and you know, cash, you can offer in intensity and direct uh, connection. And you're probably very good at that already, or else you, they wouldn't be coming back to you. Uh, in terms of what one learns from entertainment, I mean, first of all, it's, it's a field with a lot of misses. So you need to have a strategy that allows for the, the cases that don't work out. Uh, generally, the studios, the labels that thrive, are willing to let go of the people that didn't work out before sinking large cash into them, and they're always 
cautionary tales of the band that they really thought was going to do well with just one more remake and one more set of studio musicians. And for every time that works, an awful lot of time, that's hundreds of thousands that are spent trying to you know, push water uphill. That you, you, at some point, you just have to accept the market's verdict. If, if it wasn't meant to be in this form, it's, it's not meant to be. I, I like the willingness to consider the new. And the most extreme example I had when researching the book, I was, I was talking to a, a guy who runs art galleries, and there was a time where I was going to include how do you select successful artists, and then I realized it was just such a one-of-a-kind field that you probably couldn't generalize. But his rule in evaluating talent was to ask people, surprise me. And he would sometimes get wonderful things. And concurrently that week, I was interviewing pilots, and I realized there's a lot of the world that does not operate on surprise me, that you're, you're not going to run a good airline if you ask people to show you a way to land a plane that's never been done before. You've, you've got to stick with the status quo. So uh, I think it's a, it's a great example for people who are willing to take risks. Um, but it's, um, it's in its own world. Last questions? Um, in which, oh, oh go on then. <laughs> uh, good evening. Um, I'm James from Fresh Minds. Um, we're a recruitment company, um, so I'm very interested in finding that rare talent. Um, what I, I saw, I think it was your second slide, you were saying that rare was kind of one in a million, and obviously Steve Jobs is probably one in a wide, larger, larger population of people. Um, uh, for you, is your book a framework for finding rare as in one in a hundred? Because most companies probably are really looking for that talent that is one in a hundred or one in a thousand rather than one in a yeah, billion you're, because you're, you're uh, quite hiring right. Steve Jobs is disruptive. No, I, I put too many zeros on the end and I, I can make the same point more precisely by you know, shrinking us down to one in a hundred, one in a thousand. But uh, certainly that sense of the best hire of the year and uh, being in a field where you recognize that there may be one hiring decision you make that year that will you know, not just build your reputation but help take your whole organization to a new destiny as opposed to just sort of moving through humans the way you move through whatever else goes through your production line. I think there's, uh, in fact, there's a, a section in the book where I talk about five to one difference in performance and their claims that the best engineers will be a hundred to one over the average ones. I think that's an exaggeration too. So I would, you know, trim off a zero row two and bring it back more toward the, the world that we all live in. So you should also buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> and bringing me to buying the book, um, I, the book's available in, in the foyer and George has very kindly said that he'll sign copies if anybody wants to buy one tonight. So if you go outside, buy it and bring it back in here. Uh, George has uh, agreed to sign them for you. Um, in the meantime, I'd just like to say a massive thank you for uh, tonight's talk and also for answering so many questions so fully and frankly.